Welcome to the Sanction Space Podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. So we were back here in the conference booth again, live at Vegas. This is our biggest event of the year with a good few thousand people examining every element of AML, sanctions and the whole breadth of the AFC landscape. Today, another really interesting person here in the booth with me, and it's Jason Blazakis, who is the Professor of Practice, Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Montreal. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Vegas. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Jason, you and I are going to revisit a topic that the podcast has covered previously, the Wagner Group. And we've done a couple of podcasts around this earlier on in the year, but Clearly, the conversation today is very different to what it was a couple of months ago. But before we get into the detail of that, I just want to understand a little bit about you and our audience and listeners to understand a bit more about you. So explain to us about your role at the Middlebury Institute, the areas you focus on, and how you've come to be such an expert on the Wagner Group. So first I'll say my interest in the Wagner Group stems from a previous work life when I worked at the U.S. Department of State as the head of the Counterterrorism Finance and Designations Office. And being part of the Department of State, we were required to be worldly, focusing on various uh, issues across the globe. And of course, in 2014, we were acutely aware of the Russian invasion of Crimea. And it was at that point in time, we all heard about these so-called little green men, individuals who had no insignia whatsoever on their military uniforms. And some of those little green men ended up being part of this private military company that would later become more well-known as the Wagner Group. So that's where my interest stemmed from the early days of working at the State Department when I first heard about the Wagner Group. Then fast forward in time, I became a faculty member at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And at the same time, also directing our Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism, CTEC for short. And it was also there while at CTEC, where I am now, where we focus a lot of our research and attention on the Wagner Group. So you've come at this really from a really informed background, longstanding analysis of them, looking at it within the wider context of both terrorism, organized crime, statecraft, all of these elements. One of the reasons you're here in Vegas is because you're going to join me on a panel later on today around Wagner and the general risks associated with private military companies. The conversation and outlook around Wagner is somewhat different, as I said earlier, to a few months ago. Let's just remind listeners to those fateful events on the 23rd of August in terms of that now fairly famous plane explosion. Who was on the plane? What happened? And what is the immediate speculation around these events? So on August 23rd, the leader of the Wagner Group, an individual by the name of Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was a Russian oligarch with very close ties to Vladimir Putin, the head of the Russian Federation, that dates back really those ties to the 1990s. And he really grew the Wagner Group in its, what would be later, its worldwide capability, not just seeing it deployed in Ukraine, but other places as well. He and a number of other several senior leaders within the Wagner Group were killed in that explosion over Russian airspace on that aircraft on the 23rd of August. Who else was on that plane? I'm one of the senior military commanders by the name of Dmitry Utkin, a neo-Nazi, one of the, the top trainers of the cadres of military professionals that are within the ranks of the Wagner Group, was on that aircraft, as well as one of the key logisticians within the Wagner Group as well, who was responsible for making sure 
that the Wagner Group was appropriately supplied wherever it was deployed, whether it's in Ukraine or in Africa. So it was a really significant act. Um, and that act transpired very likely based on all the evidence we've heard from government officials because of uh, retribution that Vladimir Putin wanted to pay upon Yevgeny Prigozhin for his ill-fated coup that he staged in June of this year. So Yevgeny Prigozhin flew a little too close to the sun, as they say, and he got burnt by Vladimir Putin, who has a long memory about individuals who would betray him potentially. And uh, Prigozhin very likely died at the hands of, of a Putin order. So, I mean, we do know, don't we, that people who go against Putin tend not to have a very long life expectancy. Often, you know, the numbers of people who have fallen out of windows or died jogging or whatever is, is quite, it's quite significant. So, but this was a plane crash. It was a pretty big, powerful message there. So, given the crash took out really the leadership of the Wagner Group, the question is, has the risk disappeared? So in my mind, the, the risk continues. The, the Wagner Group does have a deep bench of individuals who can sustain the group's operations. And I've long been out there um, since June and July and August saying that this group is going to remain relevant, even post-coup when Yevgeny Prigozhin was put into his timeout corner in Belarus to the point where he eventually died on that fateful uh, aircraft flight on the 23rd of August. And I, I say this because while he was an individual who could inspire Wagner to carry out horrific crimes across the globe, and they certainly have human rights abuses from Libya to Ukraine, it is an organization that has tens of thousands of individuals within it. And it very looks like that the leadership of the group's going to go down to his son, Pavel Prigozhin. And this is as of uh, early October, in fact, that he's going to take a, a proactive role within the organization. So you've got the Prigozhin name still attached to the Wagner group. And you still have Wagner's operations operating at full bore throughout Africa. And a senior Department of Defense official, in fact, said they hadn't seen any kind of impact on Wagner operations in Africa. And that has been a significant source of financing for the Wagner operation as well. So I think the risk is still high. It's going to take some time for the Wagner Group's new leaders to step into those roles um, and to be the motivating forces that maybe Yevgeny Prigozhin was. So. More to be written on this, but I, I still see the organization as a significant threat to international peace and stability. You know, that was really fascinating because I think one of the big things when we spoke maybe about a month ago was around has the Russian government taken over their operations? You know, what do we know? But it seems to be quite evolving in a number of different directions. Absolutely. So a lot of speculation was that the Russian Federation would assume the major responsibilities of the Wagner Group. And as of just a few days ago, in fact, it looks like the Russian Federation is negotiating with Pavel Prigozhin about redeploying the Wagner forces in Ukraine yet again. And I think it's an example of the, the Wagner group providing a great amount of utility to the Russian Federation. And I think in this context, we're going to see maybe more influenced by the Russian Federation and the senior cadre leaders of the government to hold sway over the decision-making within Wagner. And Pavel Prigozhin is very young. He's 25 years old. So he may be more susceptible and malleable to um, Putin's designs as well. So it'll be really interesting to watch this evolve, but I still see the organization essentially operating as a proxy group, not inherently being folded into the government itself. Um, as many had assumed it would. 
So in one of the quotes you jointly authored, you described how Wagner functions like a Swiss army knife. You know, just give us a little flavor. What did you really mean by that? Because I have various images in my mind here. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the, the Wagner group serves multiple purposes. That was the point of that phrase. Um, first and foremost, it's been a, a fighting force. Like I mentioned on the top, um, it was deployed to Crimea in 2014, and it's played a really significant role in the Russian invasion um, over the last uh, one year and three quarters in Ukraine. Um, and it's been a fighting force in places like Syria and throughout Africa, ostensibly um, battling um, extremist forces on behalf of dictators and authoritarian regimes, uh, such as the Bashar al-Assad regime, where Wagner was deployed to Syria to help fight against ISIS and other forces within the coalition that was dedicated to tackling Bashar al-Assad. So first and foremost, a fighting force. Second, um, it has long been associated with disseminating propaganda. Yevgeny Prigozhin is famously known for being the head of the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, not to be confused with the Irish Republican Army. And that was a very important element within the Russian Federation in spreading myths and disinformation, most famously in 2016 during the presidential election here in the United States. And in terms of propaganda, the organization has also turned within Russia as well. And they created a tech center within St. Petersburg as part of an effort to essentially get the Russian masses to believe a lot of the lies that the Russian Federation has put forward within the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So propaganda is the second aspect of this. The third is election influencing. They're involved in across the globe the effort to really turn elections where individuals who may be more pliable to the Russian national interests are elected. And we've seen this in places like Madagascar in Africa. And of course, they were very involved based on independent and impartial reviews of information in terms of influencing the U.S. election as well um, about seven years ago. And very broadly, they're also part of an effort to expand Russian influence throughout the globe by having individuals within the Viber Group, as an example, deployed overseas to help prop up dictators. So they, they have that really filling that vacuum that the United States and the French have vacated parts of Africa. Wagner um, is stepping in. And then finally, and perhaps um, most importantly in the context of those that are listening here today, um, finance. You know, obviously the Russian Federation has been under heavy, um, significant economic sanctions for its illegal evasion, both of Crimea and then more recently its uh, intervention in, in Ukraine as well. And because they knew that they were going to go in, I think, in 2022, they were creating a atmosphere where they could accrue finance through alternative means. And the Wagner Group was indispensable to that because Wagner deployed in parts of Africa to essentially harvest minerals, gold, diamonds, natural resources like timber that are exportable, um, that don't necessarily have to go through the formal financial system where sanctions are um, most um, at perhaps uh, powerful in terms of countering. And this provided a, a rainy day fund, as it were, for the Russian Federation. So these are the five or six things we were really thinking about when we were talking about Wagner as a Swiss army knife. And gosh, it is really a Swiss army knife. You know, I've spent a lot of time working in Russia. I've spent a lot of time around Syria, you know, working in that region. I'm really aware of Wagner. But 
you know, I just was not so aware of all their Africans, hill operations, election interference. It is a Swiss army knife. Which elements do you think will evolve into a new risk within the tentacles of the Swiss army knife? So, you know, the areas where I would continue to focus energy on, particularly those that are listening to this podcast, is in the area of, of financing. And I think many times some of us have argued that the Financial Action Task Force really needs to think about developing new typologies to examine quasi-transnational organizations that have the backing of states like the Wagner Group. You know, in one way, it is operating like a, a bad state actor, and in another way, it's operating as a, a criminal or terrorism financing enterprise. And this is a really, it's not a new space, but it's really new to those of us who have been involved in battling financial crime, in some cases for, for decades. So thinking about these typologies as it relates to the deployment of private mercenary corporations is going to be particularly important because this is a new space for many in the compliance world. And I think they need better data about some of the mechanisms in which groups like the Wagner Group are profiting. And one way they're doing that is through the novel creation of front companies. Um, but there are other ways in which that is of significant um, concern for me personally. So I think the financial component of it is where they're going to continue to be, I think, most significant in playing a spoiler role within the international community. You know, I mean, that just really understanding the network and the impact for illicit finance. I know we've certainly tried to do a number of infographics and planning assumptions around this to actually help people understand Bagner. But you know, we have to look back and say, you know, what can we learn from this? Were there missed opportunities that enabled Wagner to evolve to the extent it did, whether that be in Syria, the Sahel, or forces on the ground in Ukraine? What can we learn? So you should learn that the Russian Federation and countries like China are really adaptable and creative in their approaches of exploiting um, countries that are in this area of being either a failed state or on the precipice of being a failed state. And they're really good at filling vacuums in which the, the West has historically had some kind of role. Of course, you know, the, the French post-colonial experience in, in Western Africa has been critical to the solvency of some of these regimes in places like Mali. And then we've seen where coups have um, transpired and the French have left, and the Wagner Group has been very creative in filling those voids. So in terms of the future, it's going to be incumbent upon the international community not to forget about continents like Africa. I think walking away from foreign policy, diplomatic, and security responsibilities have provided avenues not only for the Wagner Group to fill a void as it relates to the exploitation of natural resources, but also provides China an ability to really pursue its Belt and Road initiatives because it uses private entities in similar ways to the Wagner Group, perhaps not as aggressively, perhaps more nuanced and subtle, but nonetheless are deploying their national power in that same way. So this is an area where there's great risk, and I think the international community and many countries are failing Africa and other parts of the world where we have failing states. So you've already sort of jumped into that looking to the future. And I just want to pull out that a little bit more because, you know, we've looked back. What were the lessons? You know, what did we miss? And I think we did really miss an awful lot because certainly from 
you know, I like to think in our sanctions community here in ACAMS, we're quite, you know, horizon scanning, we're looking at the risks, but really we only started talking about Bagner last year and that was far too late. So if we look towards the future and we start thinking about the risks of violent non-state actors and violent non-state armed groups, mostly here, and I'm mostly talking around PMCs and, this, and similar type of entities that are establishing commercial interests. Would you say it's an issue on the rise? You know, what are the key sort of regions globally that you know we should be mostly considered about or mostly concerned about? So for me, where I'd be concerned about the rise of PMCs like the Wagner, similar groups like Wagner, it remains Africa. Africa, we've just seen yet another coup. I, I, you know, depending on how you count the coups, it was either the third or fourth in, in Africa over the last year um, in Niger. And this is an area where the Wagner Group is seeking to exploit actively. So this is another example of where countries should be looking at the political an economic climate of countries within Africa to see where that next coup may be happening to prepare themselves for that possibility of the Russian Federation stepping in and filling that political vacuum. So that is one part of this. Africa, again, I can't reemphasize this enough, is an extremely resource-rich part of the world. A very high percentage of cobalt, which is key to making iPhones, um, is in Africa and places like the Congo. And this is where we see both Russia and China focusing their energy. On the front company uh, side of this, there have been an establishment of multiple front companies by the Wagner Group throughout Asia. And we'll have to tackle that as a challenge moving forward as well. But then countries in which the United States and the financial community have fantastic relationships with, like the United Arab Emirates, tend to be an area where a lot of the Wagner ill-gotten gains from Africa are actually being exported to. And where it goes from there is often a mystery. So a lot more pressure, I think, also needs to be pushed upon the UAE vis-a-vis the Wagner Group as well. So we also can't forget these major economic and financial centers, which are critical to the Russian Federation and its war effort, and by extension, um, the Wagner Group's activities as well. So I think what I'm hearing from you is to really understand that global risk landscape, we have to really better understand the typology on how these PMCs function, both in the countries they're operating and if they're exploiting minerals or natural resources in some way, if it's protection services or something else, but then also where are the funds going to? We've not really been too good at that so far, no, have we've we? No, pretty bad at it. If you look at, at least as far as I've researched, I've not seen any specific examples of having the Wagner Group's assets seized and forfeited. And this is an area where you be able to document some success. So tracing the assets has been an extremely difficult challenge for governments. And once a front company is identified, obviously we've seen the Treasury Department and other governments take actions by sanctioning these entities. But for Wagner, it's just a, a paper game and they create a new front company. So it's been extremely difficult to get ahead of that. And that really does require a number of things that need to be done. Um, Some of it is as basic as better financial information sharing between private institutions and governments. Another part of it is, as someone who's come from the government world, better intelligence collection as well as it relates to financial intelligence collection and really prioritizing that as a mission set for the U.S. government so that information could also be exploited in any number of ways to include new sanction packages that could actually result in a front company not only being sanctioned, but then having their assets taken as well. 
So as we start to bring this to a conclusion, you know, how do we better galvanise the policy, compliance, risk dialogue surrounding PMCs? You've set out a number of elements there around the typologies, information sharing, actually going after the assets, designations. But, you know, just that broader policy, compliance, risk dialogue, you know, what else can we do? How should we be thinking about this? So it's incumbent that the PMC challenge is looked at as a priority. In my mind, we're all still really thinking about Iran finance, we're thinking about Russia finance without necessarily thinking about Wagner finance, which these things should not be mutually exclusive. We're thinking about terrorism financing and we're talking about criminal financing and really have mature systems of thinking about how these kinds of actors raise money, how they move money, how they store money. We're not really thinking along those lines about PMC. So we really need to understand that that full cycle. Um, and that is really something both the private and the government sector have to be engaged in together. And I, I will say, I think the, one of the few areas where I've seen this kind of collaboration happening with the government and private sectors at places like ACAMS. You know, we, together a couple months ago in DC with a, a group of experts, government experts and non-government experts talking about this, this very problem. But that needs to be expanded. We need to have deeper conversations and they need to be sustained. And it needs to be predicated with an eye towards understanding that this is truly a, a threat. Um, this is one of the new threats of the 21st century. I think the Russians have showed the world and other recalcitrant regimes that this is an effective strategy. And we're going to see it adopted more and more by countries like Iran. Um, China's already doing it. Wouldn't be surprised if the North Koreans starting implementing something similar to this as well. It's time to really try to get ahead of this curve. And unfortunately, we're woefully behind right now. So on that, what I would also say is, you know, you referred to those roundtables we hosted in D.C. And actually the real catalyst for us picking up Wagner and doing work around this and infographics and building, thinking on Wagner and planning assumptions on sanctions evasion was all to do with actually the academic community and the think tank community because it wasn't coming up in the private sector and public sector dialogue. So it was organizations such as yourselves and others, which we had sitting at the table and actually talking about this. And we went, my goodness, we need to do more. So they're just such a crucial. I'd love to plug for academia there. Yeah, I 100% agree. In in many ways, the academic community is writing about these things before a lot of folks really have it high on their mind. And academics have the luxury of sitting back, reflecting and, and studying and writing, right? And those in client sections have to act. Those in treasury department have to act. It's difficult as somebody who used to be in the government for nearly 20 years, you know, quite often we're reactive. We're not thinking about these broad challenges from a, a predictive standpoint necessarily. And I think that makes it extremely difficult. And this is where there's great value of um, academics. Jason, it's so important to have you part of the dialogue, to have the think tank academic community at the table, along with us in the public-private sector, doing the compliance functions, doing the law enforcement, doing the government day-to-day work. So thank you so much for your insights, for joining us here in Vegas. We look forward to the panel later on today. You know, a reminder to those listening, we have a whole range of materials around Wagner webinars, infographics, and Jason and many of his counterparts have also got fantastic resources there. So thank you for listening. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind Sanction. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great seeing you.